Well, this morning we're introducing a new series of sermons that's going to take us right on through the first Sunday in October. Uh, the title of the series, as you're seeing on the screen, is Little Letters. Specifically, we'll be teaching through the letters of John, known to us as 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John, and then the letter of Jude. And to my recollection, we've never actually taught through these letters here at LifePoint. Uh, we didn't give the series the title Little Letters because the messages contained in these letters is little, um, or of lesser importance, or of less gravity than others. On the contrary, each of these letters expresses truths that are weighty, that are of great significance to the lives of Christians and in the church and in the world today. So instead, the title simply reflects the fact that taken together, these letters are relatively brief. Just a word about how we're going to be approaching these texts um, I'm excited to be sharing the pulpit over these weeks with Pastor Evan and uh, Pastor Steve, as well as Scott Fiskness, who will be uh, bringing the word next week, and Abiodun Feliki, whom uh, many of you uh, have not yet met. Uh, but we'll be uh, approaching these scriptures in fairly large chunks. We won't be trying to exhaust every single uh, point, every single possibility. We won't dot every I or cross every T, but instead we're going to try to capture the important highlights in each section. Think of this as a survey of these letters rather than perhaps an in-depth analysis. So uh, you got me as the leadoff hitter today, and uh, we're going to take a look at First John 1, 1 through chapter 2, verse 6. And as is our tradition here at LifePoint, I'd like to ask you to stand with me if you're able, and let's read this section together. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we looked upon and have touched with our hands concerning the word of life, the life was made manifest, and we have seen it and testify to it and proclaim to you the eternal life which was with the Father and was made manifest to us. That which we have seen and heard, we proclaim also to you, so that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. And we are writing these things so that our joy may be complete. This is the message we have heard from him and proclaim to you, that God is light, and in him is no darkness at all. If we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus his Son cleanses us from all sin. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar, and his word is not in us. My little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. He is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. And by this we know that we have come to know him if we keep his commandments. Whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments is a liar. And the truth is not in him. 
But whoever keeps his word in him truly, the love of God is perfected. By this we may know that we are in him. Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. This is God's word. You may be seated. Well, I've titled this message, uh, An Invitation to Fellowship, because John invites his readers into fellowship with God and other believers that is marked by authenticity, by honesty, and obedience. Authenticity because it's predicated upon a common fellowship with God the Father and God the Son, Jesus Christ. Honesty because it doesn't try to pretend that sin isn't a problem for us. And obedience because Christian discipleship calls us to walk in the same way that Jesus walked. In chapter 1, verses 1 to 4, John issues, first of all, an invitation then to authentic fellowship, authentic fellowship. Why authentic? Because the quality of fellowship to which John invites us, invites his readers, begins with and is predicated upon a common fellowship with God the Father and God the Son. Listen again to these first four verses. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we looked upon and have touched with our hands concerning the word of life. The life was made manifest and we have seen it and testify to it and proclaim to you the eternal life which was with the Father and was made manifest to us. That which we have seen and heard we proclaim also to you so that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son Jesus Christ. And we are writing these things so that our joy may be complete. When I was in graduate school, I was uh, had the opportunity to be a TA underneath my mentor and um, had the uh, dubious privilege of grading papers and was uh, startled on many occasions by the inability of college students to uh, spell, uh, to punctuate, um, among other crimes. And if I was grading John on this opening prologue, uh, there would be a lot of red ink. It's a weird kind of run-on sentence, but it packs a punch when we come to understand it. If if you're thinking to yourself that it actually sounds kind of familiar, that it, it sounds very much like another passage in the New Testament, you're right. John opened the gospel that bears his name with very similar themes. Let's look at John 1, verses 1 through 5 and 14. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory. Glory is the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. So here in First John, the, the aged apostle, some estimate that he could have been at least, or could have been as old as 90 when he crafted these words, um, He's conveying some very important truths about about who Jesus Christ really is. He describes him first as that which was from the beginning. 
Notice that he doesn't say that which came into being at the beginning, as if Jesus was a created entity, the Son of God, something of the creation. Instead, he says that which was from the beginning. And notice the direct parallel to in the beginning was the word. And the word was with God and the word was God. He was in the beginning with God. John is clearly and unabashedly asserting in the, in the very opening line of this letter, as he did in the opening paragraphs of his gospel, the eternal nature uh, and, and the eternal existence of Jesus Christ, God's Son, whom he identifies as the Word of life. The life was manifested, he says in verse 2. Again, a direct parallel to John 1.14, the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. The, the biblical witness is that by the intervention of God the Holy Spirit in fulfillment of the Old Testament prophecies, God the Son was conceived in the womb of a virgin whose name was Mary. He was born in Bethlehem of Judea, was given the name Jesus, which is to say that in the person of Jesus Christ, the eternal God took on human flesh and lived among us, human beings. But before declaring that the life was manifested, he describes it in tangible sensory terms. Notice, that which was from the beginning which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we looked upon and have touched with our hands concerning the word of life. The life was made manifest and we have seen it. He's not talking about a merely spiritual appearing. Down through the ages, there have been many who have made the claim that Jesus didn't actually come in the flesh. The Son of God did not actually come in the flesh, but rather he just appeared to have come in the flesh. That he was a, a spiritual entity that, that was able to carry it off and, and kind of cause everybody to think that he was in a physical body. That's not what John is saying here. He's, he, he's not describing a merely hypothetical or theoretical concept. He's not, Jesus, the Son of God, is not just an intellectual category or an academic pondering. He's, nor is he recounting an experience of mass hallucination as if everybody saw something together, but it wasn't really real. He's, he's pointing instead to a tangible historical experience in space and time shared by others of God in human flesh, Jesus Christ. They heard him, they saw him, they touched him, they beheld him, which is that word that's there which translated looked upon, which means that they had time and opportunity to know him, to draw close to him, and to draw intelligent conclusions about him. And now notice where he goes directly from there in verse 3. That which we have seen, again tangible, and heard tangible, we proclaim to you also so that, so that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. Don't miss that. So that you may have fellowship with us 
And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. Who are the we? Who are the us? It's those who were eyewitnesses and earwitnesses and handwitnesses. I don't know if those are actually words, but I just made them up. Of Jesus Christ while he lived on the earth. He's describing himself and the other apostles and the others who were there on the scene at the time. And don't miss what he says is the purpose of that proclamation, that we, his readers, may have fellowship with them, the apostles, the other witnesses to his life, death, resurrection, and ascension. We, we have fellowship with them, even over time and space, because... He's expressing here something that's often missed. His purpose, hear me here, his purpose in his proclamation of the gospel is stated in terms not of salvation, but of fellowship. Not of salvation but of fellowship. Before you decide I'm a heretic and throw me off the stage. Is salvation in view here? Of course it is. In fact, he's expressing the fullness of the practical meaning of salvation, what it, what it means in, in practical terms in day-to-day life to be saved. Salvation means first reconciliation to God in Jesus Christ, that is fellowship with the Father and with the Son, Jesus Christ, But secondly, incorporation into the community of believers, the church. Fellowship with other Christians, other Christ followers, other disciples, other believers. It's a radical claim in today's world to say that salvation implies incorporation into the church, the body of Christ, the community of believers. We never hear that salvation means any of that, being incorporated into an active fellowship in the church. In fact, we uh, evangelicals have neatly separated those two and almost entirely bifurcated the whole matter. But in Acts 2, verse 41, and by the way, we're going to be in the Acts of the Apostles beginning in October October 19th, to be exact. In Acts 2, verse 41, you might recall that that on the day of Pentecost, Peter preached this powerful sermon in the streets of Jerusalem, and it says that 3,000 were baptized that day and added. Added. Added to what? Added to the church. And then in verse 47, it says that that the Lord was adding to their number day by day those who were being saved. Salvation involves incorporation into the fellowship of the church. And third, salvation means personal holiness, which is a major theme of John's letter. Jesus, in his high priestly prayer in John 17, said that this fellowship is the very meaning of eternal life. And this is eternal life, that that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent, to enter into that 
relationship. You know, every every church in the country used to have a room that was known as the fellowship hall. Many, many still do. Most, in fact, still do. Well, what happens in the fellowship hall? Uh, 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 a whole lot of coffee is consumed with a whole lot of cream and sugar. Um, donuts are eaten in the fellowship hall. Mm-mm-mm. Potlucks happen in the fellowship hall. Other inv- events involving food happen in the fellowship hall. Now, there's nothing wrong with Christians drinking coffee and eating together. I- I'm all for it. I'm in. But Houston, we have a problem when our understanding of Christian fellowship stops at the door of the fellowship hall. Or when our definition of fellowship, in fact, involves a lot of pretending that we all like each other. You said what? Uh, Yeah, pretending that we all like each other, you know. Someone said behind every smile is a set of teeth. (laughs) Or when our, our definition of fellowship involves avoiding conflict and failing to address the deeper and sometimes more difficult issues of Christian discipleship and authentic Christian community. What John is telling us is that our fellowship with each other arises from and is contingent upon our fellowship with God. That is that the depth and the quality of our fellowship with each other will in fact depend upon the depth and quality of our individual discipleship. Another way of saying that is to say that our fellowship with each other within the believing community is impossible, is impossible apart from our fellowship with the Father and with the Son. John Stott, the late John Stott, wrote this about that. A human fellowship arising spontaneously from a divine fellowship is a rebuke to much of our modern evangelism in church life. We cannot be content with an evangelism that does not lead to the drawing of converts into the church, nor with a church life whose principle of cohesion is a superficial social camaraderie instead of a spiritual fellowship with the Father and his Son, Jesus Christ. In short, if you want to experience deeper fellowship, then pursue deeper discipleship. Pursue your own spiritual growth. In fact, we might think of that, you know, we we think of uh, responsibilities that we might have within the church of greeting or leading or teaching or you name it. But the most fundamental responsibility of each individual Christian to the church is to pursue your own spiritual growth. If you're not doing that, you are detracting from what could be in the fellowship of the church. In verse 4, John states his second reason for writing, which is that the joy of the apostles would be made complete. Authentic Christian fellowship is always reaching out to incorporate others into the life of Christ and the community of believers. And I love the way that the Message Bible renders this verse. Our motive for writing is simply this. 
We want you to enjoy this too. Your joy will double our joy. Great word. Secondly, then, John is issuing an invitation to honest fellowship. Honest fellowship. Why honest? Because the fellowship that John is after isn't the kind that hides behind the pretense that sin isn't a reality in our lives. Or pretending, or the pretense that that uh, the primary problem in our relationship with God and each other is not sin. John opens this section with the declaration that this God, with whom we are invited into fellowship, is light, and in him is no darkness at all. This is the message we have heard from him and proclaim to you that God is light, and in him is no darkness at all. We, we greet each other, hey, how you doing? Oh, I'm doing great. And we kind of hope it'll end right there, right, so we can get to the coffee. But what if somebody says, well, what have you struggled with this week? What kind of temptations have you faced? <laughs> you know, I, I really need to get to the coffee. Maybe if I have a cup of coffee, then I'll be ready to answer your question. Oh, well, um, just wondered, which of those temptations did you give in to? Now they're really meddling, right? But we kind of ski over the top of our relationships in the church because everything's great, everything's fine. In biblical scripture, the categories of light and darkness are used metaphorically in several senses. Most often they're used in an intellectual sense to express the light of truth and the darkness of ignorance or error. Or in a moral sense, to express the light of holiness or purity and the the darkness of evil and wickedness. And John wants his readers to understand that God is light. He is entirely truthful. He is entirely holy. And James refers to God as the Father of lights with whom there is no variation, no shifting shadow. God is light. He doesn't operate in the shadows. He doesn't operate in darkness or in secretiveness. There is nothing of darkness about any aspect of his being. He lives in unapproachable light. He created light. His light reveals what is hidden in our darkness. His light lights up our lives. Feel like singing a song right now? And you light up my life. Is that a worship song? Maybe. Throughout this letter, John supplies a number of searching tests by which to discern the the veracity of anyone's claim to be a Christian, whether it's yourself or anyone else. Here in in chapters 1 and 2, he offers the first three. And his presentation of each of these follows a, a basic pattern. There is a claim followed by a contradiction, whether overt or implied, and then a conclusion and a proposed cure, and then a consequence to that cure. Claim, contradiction, conclusion, cure, 
consequence. Let's look at them. The first is found in verses 6 to 7. If we say we have fellowship with him, while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus his Son cleanses us from all sin. The claim there, of course, is that we have fellowship with that God, the one who is light, who is all truth and all holiness. But then John states the the contradiction. We walk in darkness. There it is. We say we have fellowship with that God while we walk in darkness. Our, Our claim to have fellowship with God is contradicted when we walk in darkness, when we live as creatures of darkness, allowing darkness to pervade and define our lives. The Bible says men love darkness rather than light because their deeds are evil. When when Marcy and I were in a graduate school, another story from graduate school, we, we lived in an apartment in Ballard, and uh, it was married student housing. And it, it was a building that had been built for the 1962 World's Fair that housed internationals that were in town for the, the Seattle World's Fair. It was an old building. And uh, the person who lived there prior to the university taking over the particular apartment we were in was a merchant marine. He was a chain smoker, and uh, he was only there occasionally because, of course, he was out to sea and back and out to sea and back. And uh, the whole thing didn't really smell very good. Uh, Not only that, but um, one morning not long after we had moved in, I I walked into the kitchen. It was still dark. It was early in the morning. I flipped on the light, and a bunch of very large insects went skittering from the middle of the kitchen floor into uh, or under the the refrigerator. There were la cucaracha, uh, cockroaches. They love darkness. When the light was shone on them, they skittered back into the darkness. In chapter 2, John points out the ultimate example of what it means to walk in darkness. And there he equates walking in darkness with hatred toward those who are our spiritual brothers and sisters in Christ. He says in verse, verses 9 to 11 of chapter 2 that, that the claim that we love our brothers is, is clearly contradicted when we harbor attitudes and engage in actions that demonstrate hatred instead of love. In verse 11 he says, but whoever hates his brother is in the darkness and walks in darkness and does not know where he's going because the darkness has blinded his eyes. It's just a tremendous word picture. What might it look like to hate our brother or sister in Christ? Well, there's a there's a kind of hatred that's characterized by active animosity, isn't there? It's 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 kind of the white hot kind of hatred. Consider that when we're we're possessed of, of an active animosity, though, that there is at least an element of emotional engagement. There is a kernel of caring in that emotion. But there's another kind of hatred that's more 
insidious and more pervasive, I think, in the church. It's experienced in a complete lack of caring, in in an emotional and a kind of a spiritual apathy that says, you don't really matter to me. Because we would never say it out loud, but we would say it by our conduct. You, you don't actually even show up on my emotional and relational radar. It's expressed in kind of an easy-come, easy-go attitude toward engagement in the community of believers. It's a, it's a kind of artificial fellowship, what the late Dietrich Bonhoeffer referred to as pseudo-community, fake community, pretend church. And I'll be honest, it's it's amazing to me, and I've seen it for many, many years now, that a Christian can leave a church, leave the, and not just the church, not the church as an organization, the church as a community, the, the church as a network of relationships can can be seemingly very involved and active and making a difference, and yet one Sunday you go, where's John, I don't know. I haven't seen him in a while. Has anybody seen him? No, nope, haven't seen him. What happened to John? Oh, you find out John. John's now down at another church. <laughs> no notice. It's just an exit. How is that possible? in a loving community. John's conclusion is that if we claim to be living in fellowship with God, who is light, yet are walking in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. His prescribed cure is that we walk in the light as God is in the light. In the New Testament, that word walk refers to our lifestyle, the, the collective, the, the overall values and actions that characterize the, the ways that we live our lives, the pattern of our lives. To walk in the light is to, to consciously choose to live our lives in accordance with what is true, what God has revealed to be true. And John wants us to conform our lifestyles to the light of God as it shines out to us through his word. And the consequence then, or the outcome of conforming our lives to his word, is that, and this goes back to the, the matter of discipleship as the foundation for fellowship, the consequence or, an out, or outcome of conforming our lives to his word is that we experience an honest fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus his son continues its work of cleansing us from the guilt of sin. And isn't, isn't it good to know that, that the blood of Christ that once cleansed us of our sin when we believed in him keeps on cleansing us? It just keeps on cleansing us. The second claim John identifies here is, is the claim to have no sin. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Now, the way we interpret this particular claim depends on the way we interpret, I think, the word have 
in verse 8. It's not the same as depending on what the word is, is, you know. Um, but two basic possibilities exist here. One is the claim that sin has no presence in our lives at all. And there are some churches that teach that, that sinlessness in this life is actually a possibility for a Christian this side of heaven. Uh, I can't even go there. Uh, I, I can't even relate to that thought. The second possible interpretation is that have means to hold on to, to grasp, to cling to. And in that case, the claim is that, that uh, hey, I'm, I'm not clinging to personal pet sin, uh, of which I'm reluctant or refusing to repent. For an example, an unhealthy habit or an unhealthy relationship or dishonest business practices or you fill in the blank. And in this case, the contradiction is implied. You say you have no sin? Oh, yes, you do. Who are you kidding? John's conclusion provides the answer. If we make that claim, the only ones we're kidding are ourselves. We deceive ourselves. And the truth is not in us. Liar, liar, pants on fire. The cure that John prescribes for this condition is to confess our sin. Confess our sin. That that word confess is homologeo. And it it literally means, literal translation is same word. Same word. It conveys the idea of saying the same thing. In this case, it means agreeing with God. Confession isn't simply acknowledging something you've done, just saying, yeah, I did that. That's not confession. Confession means agreeing with God, saying the same thing about our sin that he says about our sin the reality that sin does exist in our lives, that our sin occasioned the cross, and that while we may have been born again and received the gift of eternal life, sin remains a functional obstruction to our day-to-day fellowship with God. It's just a reality. In today's world, we we don't want to agree with God about the, the reality of sin. We want to talk about our our personal needs, our personal choice, our personal autonomy, our, our personal rights, our changing personal identity. We, we want to argue with God's judgment. And we insist in many cases that what God calls sin is actually, truth be known, just a healthy personal choice. God needs to get over it. But when we go on insisting on our own way, what we find ourselves doing is opposing the God of the universe, not agreeing with him. When we confess our sin, the consequence or the outcome, John says, is that God is faithful and he is just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. His faithfulness is to his own covenant promises. 
I will forgive their sins. I'll forgive their iniquities and their sins I will remember no more. His justice is forever satisfied through the death of his son, Jesus Christ, on the cross. So that when in honesty and humility, we agree with him about the reality and about the effect and about the grievousness of our sin, he responds by cleansing us from the day-to-day sin that stands between us and him. There was a time in America where you could work on your own car. Anybody remember those days? If you do, you you... You may have had the experience of seeing uh, your car battery and those two little posts and a whole bunch of gooey, cruddy gunk in between them. And for some reason, your, your engine is losing power. Why? Because all that gooey, cruddy gunk in, in between the post is shorting things out. And that's a picture, I think, of, of the day-to-day sin that just kind of builds up over time unconfessed sin, and it just starts to pervade our lives and get in the way of our relationship with God. Our spiritual lives are shorted out. Posts need to be cleaned. The third claim is in chapter 1, verse 10 to 2-2, and it is the claim that we haven't sinned at all. If we say we have not sinned, We make him a liar and his word is not in us. The contradiction is implied. It's self-evident. We, in fact, have sinned. If we have not sinned, then we don't need a savior. We are our own savior, saving ourselves from the things that come against us personally. And if we don't need a savior, then God sent his son on a fool's errand. So then the conclusion is that we make God out to be a liar and we disregard what he has said about our sin. And God has said first through the prophets and then through the apostles things like this. All we, all we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. The Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Or this in Romans, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. In chapter 2, verse 1, John expresses his intent. My little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. And again, John's not saying my little children in a condescending way, nor is he just talking to preschoolers. John, the aged apostle, John, the elder, senior elder by this point, is speaking to all of us in the church. My little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. That, But that's a worthy goal, isn't it? But it's not yet the reality of our lives, is it? And so he adds, but if anyone does sin, well, of course we will. I wonder if he was just smiling as he wrote that, a little sarcasm. But if we do, if anyone does, So when we do, here's the cure. He says, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. He is the propitiation for our sins, not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. If we do sin, or more 
more accurately, because we do sin. Jesus Christ is our advocate with the Father. He is, in effect, the attorney for the defense. And Paul put it this way in his letter to the believers in Rome, who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died, more than that who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. So when Satan accuses us, when he brings an accusation against us because of our sin, Jesus stands before the righteous judge and says, in effect, yes, she sinned, but she belongs to me. I died for this one, and my blood atoned for all of her sin. I love those words of that song that we sing fairly frequently. When Satan tempts me to despair and tells me of the truth within, upward I look and see him there who made an end of all my sin because the sinless Savior died. My sinful soul is counted free because God the just is satisfied to look on him and pardon me. Jesus Christ is the, the propitiation We've seen this word before, the atoning sacrifice for our sin. By his death on the cross, Jesus accomplished two things that are significant to our salvation. First of all, he took away all our sin. He he took it away. And where did he put it? He put it on himself. And he took it to the cross. The Bible says that, that Christ bore our sins in his own body on the cross. So he took away our sin. And then he satisfied the just wrath of God on our behalf. Jesus Christ became our wrath absorber so that all of the wrath of God was poured out on Jesus at the cross. And so Jesus was able to say, having taken away our sins, having satisfied the wrath of God toward us, toward our sin, it is finished. It's done. And have you noticed as we've been going through this that every one of these cures that John presents is an exposition of the work of Christ on the cross? The cross is the ultimate answer to all of our failure to meet God's righteous standard, and it is to the cross that we must go if we're going to experience an honest fellowship with God and with each other. Finally, John issues an invitation to obedient fellowship. Obedient because Christian discipleship calls us to walk in the same way Jesus walked. And by this we know that we have come to know him if we keep his commandments. Whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments is a liar, and the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word in him, in him truly, the love of God is perfected. By this we may know that we are in him. Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. Notice again the claim, which is, we know him. We know him. But the contradiction is obvious when we make that claim but fail to keep his commandments. And John's conclusion then is that we are liars. We're not dealing in truth, whether about God or about ourselves or about what our personal conduct is actually revealing about us. And notice John's twofold repetition of this phrase, by this we know. 
John uses this phrase six times in 1 John. By this we know. And John has provided us throughout this letter then with tests that help us to evaluate whether our Christianity is in fact genuine. And here the two tests center on obedience. By this we know that we have come to know him, that we keep his commandments. By this we may know that we are in him, that we walk as Jesus walked. Now imagine a church in which the fellowship we pursue centers on deepening discipleship, growing love, honesty and humility about the reality of our personal struggles with sin, encouragement of one another to greater obedience to the commands of Christ. What might happen in a church like that? What might happen through a church like that? What might characterize the individual spiritual lives of each of the members of a church like that? What might happen in our marriages and in our families if we committed ourselves to that kind of fellowship? So let me ask you, church, are are we content to simply satisfy ourselves with a superficial kind of fellowship, a pretend fellowship, a a pseudo-community, or are we willing to pursue fellowship that is authentic, that is honest, and that is obedient? Jesus said, by this all men will know that you're my disciples, that you love one another. Francis Schaeffer used to say, that's the final apologetic for the gospel, the final defense for the faith, that the, that the world looking on. And, and Schaeffer said that it seems that God has given the, the right to the world to discern whether we're true followers of Jesus Christ or not. As the world looks on, do they see a fellowship that is authentic? Do they see a fellowship that is honest, that is obedient? Do they see Christians actually tangibly, honestly, obediently loving one another? By this all men will know that you're my disciples, that you love one another. And I believe that God is calling us here at LifePoint to a deeper spirituality, to a deeper experience of Christian community that will serve as a witness that our claim to be his disciples is real. And I'd like to ask you to join me in pursuing that together. As we come to the Lord's table today, this ritual that we follow that Jesus gave to us, there's a scripture in 1 Corinthians 10 that relates what I've been talking about with communion itself. Paul wrote, the cup of blessing that we bless. Is it not a participation in the blood of Christ. That word participation there is the same word koinonia that's translated fellowship and partnership. The root word for our word community. The cup of blessing that we bless, is it not a fellowship in the blood of Christ? 
a mutual sharing. The bread that we break, is it not a participation, a mutual sharing, a fellowship in the body of Christ? Because there is one bread and implied one cup, we who are many are one body, for we all partake of the one bread. Communion is for Christians. Communion is only for those who have trusted in Christ. It's not an empty ritual that's, that everyone is invited to participate in. It's only for believers in Jesus. So if you believe in Jesus today, you're invited to participate as an expression of a remembrance of the body and the blood, the sacrifice of Jesus Christ, and, and as an expression of our fellowship with him and through him to one another. The body of Christ given for you. Take it and eat it. So on that night when he was betrayed, also after dinner took the cup and said, this cup is the new covenant. This is the new deal. This is the new promise that, that God is making to you through Christ. This is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. Let's pray together. Lord, would you work in us what John wrote to us, a community of fellowship that is rooted in genuine discipleship, that is authentic, that is honest, that is obedient. Lord, help us not to play church. Help us to be the kind of people that you saved us to be, the kind of people you had in mind for us to be when you first thought of us. We don't want to play games. We don't want to be pretend Christians. We don't want to be a superficial church. We want to engage with you and with each other. So by your spirit, would you have your way and make us the people in the church you want us to be that the world would know that we are your disciples, that the world would be persuaded that God sent you, Lord Jesus, into the world to be our Savior. And we pray it in that name of Jesus, our Savior, our soon-coming King, our Lord. Amen.